Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Chuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. As a minister, uh, the job is to tell the truth. That's the call. That's, that's the virtue but it doesn't often happen because, well, there's money involved. you got to please people. Keep the building going. Don't anger the people who don't want to hear what you have to say. And it isn't just for clergy. It's for uh, publishers. It's for book writers, authors, comedians, singers. We all face compromises. But when does that compromise cross the line into when we actually deny our very calling itself. We need a hero, a virtue to keep us in line, and we're going back to the 17th century to find one in Roger Williams. My guest is religion writer Becky Garrison. Her writing credits include work for the Washington Post's On Faith column, The Guardian, Believe Out Loud, Killing the Buddha, American Atheist Magazine, Perceptive Travel, The Revealer, Free Inquiry, Religion and Politics, Religion Dispatches, and the now-defunct Wittenberg Door. When she takes a break from her laptop, uh, Becky can be found kayaking, fly fishing, and biking and talking to radio hosts on Skype. Uh, Roger Williams' Little Book of Virtues is her latest book. It's an e-book. I read that on my nook. Uh, She delves into the life of her 11th and 12th great-grandfather to uncover the untold story behind this forgotten pioneer of religious liberty. Uh, She is also the author of Red and Blue God, Black and Blue Church, eyewitness accounts of how American churches are hijacking Jesus, bagging the Beatitudes, and worshiping the almighty dollar. Becky Garrison on Skype with me from New York City. Uh, Welcome to Religion for Life. Well, thank you for having me. Much appreciated. Glad to be here. So Roger Williams is your 11th and 12th uh, great-grandfather. How does that work? Uh, I am descended by two of his sons, the fourth and, gen- and fifth generation. They, they, one, one daughter married another son. So um, did you grow up then? Uh, you are the descendant of Roger Williams, so eat your vegetables. Or, or did you, is this something you discovered later on? Uh, well, Roger Williams has been pretty much largely forgotten. I mean, I knew he was my ancestor. He founded Prudence Island, Rhode Island where my family vacationed, but I just thought he was this figure covered in pigeon poop that graces, you know, providence and so forth. I didn't really know much about his writing until a few years ago because I went to Yale Divinity School and you don't really study the works of a founder of the Baptist Church in America when you're in a mainline divinity school studying more Anglicanism and more mainline thought. Well, tell us a little bit about Roger Williams. He was, uh, uh, what is his story? His story is he became a Puritan again. He became an Anglican, actually, against his father's wishes, more of the along the Puritan lines. And back in the this was back in the days under you know James the First and Charles the First, where being a Puritan was often a death sentence. So he came to the um, then what they call the New World in search of religious tolerance. He landed on the shores of Boston in 1631, welcomed as this godly minister. By John Winthrop, who everyone might know, he was the person who, governor of Massachusetts, and the one who coined the phrase "city on the hill." New England was Massachusetts was to be this beacon of light that was going to show forth a Puritan Christian virtue. 
Roger Williams argued that the church should be separated from the crown, the Native Americans should be compensated for their land, and people should be free to follow their religious conscience as they so pleased. This disrupted uh, the social order of Massachusetts, uh, obviously and understandably, and after a series of escapades, he was kicked out, given the boot to Rhode Island. There he founded the First Baptist Church in America and also crafted a colony that created the first charter in Western civilization that made liberty of conscience and the right for one to worship as they please the law of the land. And this was very new. I mean, this type of understanding of religious liberty was uh, a new idea. Yes, we're talking pre-Enlightenment. Roger Mm -hmm. Williams dated Locke about 50 years beforehand. And because he was one of those new thinkers, a new pioneer, when he began, his books were burned by Parliament. He was deemed, pretty much died a loser for all practical purposes and a forgotten hero. That's why even though his words are imprinted into our First Amendment, his books were not on the shelves, as far as we know, of the Founding Fathers. His name was not bandied about when they were crafting what does it mean for us to create a nation that can truly welcome all. And also one thing is interesting to note about Roger Williams when he crafted this law, he was granting more freedom to women. And he also, Rhode Island was also one of the first states that legal that made slavery illegal, two items that were noticeably missing when we were crafting our original founding documents. So he was way uh, a century, literally, ahead of the... Um the Constitution, and uh, but even farther ahead than that in terms of his ideas uh, regarding slavery. And also with women's rights. Roger Williams created this haven where all were free to worship as they please, and this included, at that time, people who were atheists, who went by the less desirable name, quote-unquote, heretic. In fact, Rhode Island was one of the states that had one of the first cases where a woman's right to worship as she pleased was deemed to be valid and upheld. There was a case of Joshua Barron who was beating his wife and not letting her attend Roger Williams' worship services, which she wanted to do so. The council got together. They could not decide, as was common of other people of this time, if Joshua Barron was actually guilty of spousal abuse, even though he was beating his wife to nearly an inch of her life. But they did declare that she had a right to worship as she pleased. They voted in favor of her. Unfortunately, Mr. Barron then got very understandably ticked off, left the colony, and we presume not his what he probably took his wife with him and probably ended up killing her. But she was deemed to have the right to worship as she pleased. And the treatment of women back then, who were viewed as subhuman, their you know husband's property, was almost unheard of. He also helped Anne Hutchinson negotiate the sale of Portsmouth with the local natives. So another group of uh, human beings that he regarded as human beings were Native Americans. Without a doubt. He took time to work with them, learn their language. He crafted one of the first books that translated the Native tongue into English. And in fact, if you think about this, this is what really was ticking off the people in the New World. He insisted that they be compensated fairly for their land. Now, this brings up we can never forget the role that commerce played in governing Americana Christianity from the Mm get-go. 
you know, often religion was used as a means of social control. You couldn't have these crazy Quakers running around. You couldn't have dissent. The pressure on Massachusetts Bay Colony to be a successful port was immense. You could not tick off Charles I. So that was one of the tensions that Winthrop had in wanting to maintain social order. He needed to be able to prove that this colony was successful. And so Roger Williams is really considered as a threat to the established powers. Uh, he's a threat to the whole social order and to commerce and to how things, uh, you know, can, can fit together. Yes. And if you notice, he's starting a very grand tradition that has been present in Americana Christianity from the get-go. Whether it's today's the contemporary evangelical Christian publishing machine or it's the people trying to maintain order at Massachusetts Bay Colony, there's always been a resistance to people that stood up against the social order and insisted that people should have a right to follow their liberty of conscience and choose their path that both speaks to them. This has been a tension in our country that's been going on for centuries. In the course of addressing contemporary issues, tell me how it is that you came to write this book about the virtues, according to Roger Williams. Well, it seemed to me that we were having, I mean, I've been, as a senior contributing editor for the Wittenberg Door, you know, we've been chronicling what I thought was the religious rights demise. I started writing for them the year that the religious right took over Congress, you know, Newt Gingrich and that lovely little Ralph Reed and that whole crew. About the mid-90s, 94 or so, wasn't it? Yes, it was 90. And we began to, our goal was to dismantle that people that kept themselves away, anyone who kept anybody and anything away from the quote-unquote following their own true spiritual path. And in the process, we were highlighting a number of interesting, you know, progressive voices that were that seemed to be speaking from the wilderness. But what I noticed is that the moment people, even these seemingly progressive voices, would become a quote-unquote household name, start publishing it pretty soon became all about branding themselves. This kinder, gentler Christianity ceased being prophetic and seemed more concerned with book sales than actually speaking the truth to power. So the question becomes, what exactly is happening in the world of Christianity today? On one level, you have this mushy evangelicalism that no matter how progressive it may become, still does not really embrace women still does not have LGBT people in leadership, and is still predominantly white and male. My guest is Becky Garrison. Uh, She's a religion writer and the author of the new book, Roger Williams' Little Book of Virtues. And we're talking about how this figure in history, Roger Williams, uh, who represents um, religious liberty uh, and perhaps some of his virtues might help us in terms of understanding how we might uh, negotiate uh, the complexities of religion and politics in contemporary America. Uh, Becky Garrison, my guest, talking about uh, his book. So, uh, and you happen to base it on the classical virtues. So, so what can we, uh, do, you, do? You, well, I guess I'll put it this way. Do you have a bracelet, uh, WWRD, what would Roger do? No, I don't have a bracelet because I don't think Roger would have gone into that kind of Christian branding line uh-huh. of garbage anyway. But I do think the reason I stuck onto that is that I began having these conversations with what I would call people of the more apophatic tradition who were out searching for a mystery with humanists and realizing there was a lot of connections that could be had, and especially around the issue of exploring human basic human rights. You know, in my conversations with humanists, I'm finding a lot of synergy and a desire to want to work together to form truly inclusive communities. So instead of having this evangelical emergent 
quote unquote conversation about inclusivity, they're actually going out and doing it. That's why I began blogging for the website Believe Out Loud. And I also started contributing to American Atheist Magazine. There is some synergy there that is happening. And where Roger Williams plays into this is the right for all to have equal access to the same rights as everyone else. And you notice what's interesting is how the emergent people kind of hem and haw. They might talk about this new kind of Christianity that brings about an insurrection where love wins and so forth. But they largely are not really discussing this huge shifting that I'm seeing around embracing LGBT people, uh, you know, undocumented workers and so forth. And I'm seeing this in some of the more liberal traditions, and you're seeing it definitely in humanist circles. Uh, and you also mentioned in your book the rise of, of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And what is the significance of that? The significance of it is that People are feeling more free to want to stand up and be like Roger. Instead of the Roger, the Winthrop method, where it's the city on the hill, and no matter how you try to shape it and make it look good, it still has the imprimatur of Americana Christianity versus following your own path and seeing what speaks to you. And after founding the Baptist Church, Roger Williams left it and became a seeker. And you're finding a lot of people who are in that kind of position. They're seeking and seeing what works for them. Some may find comfort in a church or synagogue or mosque. Others are going to find comfort in other ways. And you really can't put them into the angry atheist stereotypical category, nor can you put them into the kinder, gentler Christian world. And it's impossible to market to them because they're finding their own voice, finding what speaks to them. And I think these are the people that very much would resonate with a person like Roger Williams instead of the Americana imprimatur of Winthrop that is what's been put forth as the model for the past couple hundred years. And you kind of write in your book a, a little bit of a, of a critique of the emergent or evangelical or progressive wing of the church, uh, seeing this rise of nuns as kind of a, a fresh meat or something like that uh, to go ahead and market to them. And Well, here's a good case in point. You know, um, right as Rob Bell and Jim Wallace's latest books are coming out, mm-hmm. all of a sudden, they now say it's okay for gays and lesbians that they want to get married. Yeah, where were you? Where were you in the middle of what, before when we were fighting for these rights? And not only that, but they only said they're, but this is what how they kind of play the game. They never say if they will marry anyone who is LGBT. They never come out and say if they'll help to fight for civil rights for basic LGBT people. They just say, well, if they want to get married, it's okay. They should be able to do that. Well, that's kind of like saying back in the 60s, if you remember the whole conversation about African-Americans, well, you know, blacks are good people. So what? What are you going to do about it? Where are you going to put the teeth and the meat that's going to actually bring about social justice? And And that's why I was getting very interested in wanting to connect with some of the with the humanists, because you get some of the energy happening, like Greg Epstein at the humanist chaplaincy at Harvard is doing a lot of work of, of bringing together Um, For example, they have a service event where they will bring together religious and non-religious people together for a day of service. And people get a chance to work together and meet with each other and see what do we have in, in common in our shared humanity. And I think too many times people try to find common ground around theology. Like, let's all get together and have this kind of kumbaya thing and, you know, play with our navels and whatnot. Meanwhile, there's some serious issues 
that are left to be resolved, which is why I, for recently for the Washington Post and Religion Dispatches, I penned a piece that asked why were the non-theists not permitted to attend an interfaith service attended by President Obama designed to bring about healing in post the Boston Marathon. Right, right. Greg Epstein, you mentioned, uh, author of Good Without God. Um, and, and one of the things you're talking about when you say, yeah, we, we think it's okay for gays to get married, but not really doing anything about it. And you'd connect that with the importance of Roger Williams' virtue of courage. Uh, you have to get out there and walk the talk. And that's what I find is that's what I find is so silly because, like the just take the Episcopal Church. I know they have a lot of flaws, a lot of foibles. I my late father was an Episcopal priest, and prior to becoming an alcoholic, and then as I write in the book taking my mother along with him when I was a kid. So I'm in the Episcopal Church has stood by silently. So I'm not about to defend the Episcopal Church. Lord, Lord knows they've done their share of foibles, but they ordained the first, you know, gay or priest back in 1976 mm-hmm. they have seven transgender clergy it is it has become safer if you look at this they're leading the forefront of employment non-discrimination for lgbt people now that that's not insignificant that's including right. a group of people and giving them and affirming their dignity which i do not see happening in the evangelical church it's kind of like a pat on the back that's very nice and even in the most emergent context, it's still almost all published and led by straight white males. And the moment you offer this critique, they engage in what I would call gaslighting for God. Instead of saying, let's look at the structure, we need to examine the structure, it's next thing you know, it's ad hominem attacks. And it's just very interesting. You know, troll, hack, Hitler, you name it, you get called it. And that's one reason why I think a number of people have left the discussion. It's just who wants to be a part of that? That's not very healthy. It's not spiritually affirming. It's not, it's not how you treat people in their shared humanity. Right. I think of uh, my own denomination, uh, the Presbyterian Church USA, and its struggles over sexuality, finally uh, removing at least a little paragraph of discrimination and all the time it took for that. Uh, and now, uh, you know, all of the threats of everybody leaving the church. And my view is... Okay, go ahead. That's fine, and we gotta we gotta move on. We gotta celebrate uh, the any even even just an incremental uh, movement toward justice and encourage that in whatever institution. Well, and I think what you're also finding here is part of this shifting is that the Christian publishing empire is really starting to crack. I've is taken a significantly hard turn to the right. You know, people have asked me, you know, why did you publish with Christian Publishing? There was a period of time, I would say until a few years ago, where you could pu- publish in the Christian world and say a number of very provocative and thought-provoking pieces. But in the couple, past couple of years, Christian publishers have taken a hard turn to the right. And a lot of it is over topics relating to human sexuality. This is just the venue. They will not go there. Or if they go there, they put something out there that's so wishy-washy and mealy, mushy, that you just look at this and go, this is just pablum. This is not really authentic and prophetic voices. Meanwhile, you can then go to a press such as Beacon Press or even you know, church publishing and find they are pu- putting out some really forward-thinking pieces on 
queer theology, for example. Mm -hmm. And that to me is much more significantly exciting than a lot of the stuff coming out of the Christian publishing world. And I think that's one reason why a lot of people still remain very calm, very cautious. You know, I don't want to really talk too much about, you know, the LGBT word because God forbid that's going to cut off my ability to communicate with my more conservative audience and those happen to be the people that have the bulk of the money. Yeah. Eventually, uh, I, I would love to see just kind of the end of uh, religion as industry <laughs> and find uh, a, a new way of, of, of relating as Americans uh, with a, a great uh, independence of spirituality uh, in lieu of your ancestor, Roger Williams. And, well, there, and I think we're at a point where technology can let that happen. You're finding a rise of independent podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was able to pu- self-publish this book in a manner that I could not have done even two years ago. I just wanted to try this venue out to see how this worked. I do think that the future is going to be in some hybrid of traditional and self-publishing, but we're now in a position where for a lot of genres, you do not need a gatekeeper. Right. And the, the way technology is demolishing the need for gatekeepers is creating forth a lot of new opportunities to make a lot of connections with people. In one case in point, I mentioned briefly the exclusion of the humanists from this service. They were able to online start a petition with Groundswell, and next thing you know, there is literally a groundswell of support of religious and non-religious voices who are saying, this was wrong. Everyone needs to be included as part of any kind of a national healing movement. You know, you can't exclude swaths of our population and dismiss them because they don't fit your particular worldview. Now, my challenge here is how do we bring along the more conservative people who are confused? They're scared. They're frightened. We're in a period of our culture that is scary. We're we're in an economic shift. There's a lot of global conflicts. I understand why people are scared. Unfortunately, you have an extreme wing of a particular party, in this case it happens to be the Republicans, who have captured that fear. They filter it through groups like the National Organization of Marriage, Family Research Council, other people who are in the business of manufacturing a fear-based faith that they are then imposing on the rest of Americana Christendom. And that is what is really, truly dreadful. And then you look at the... Um, progressives and they're just not really responding they're just kind of sitting back and going oh well whatever if i say too much get too controversial i don't want to make waves i want to be nice well now is not the time to be nice now is the time to stand up and be like roger williams and speak on behalf of those who are being oppressed and just tell the oppressors to leave to go away And that's the ultimate thing is, are people willing to say what needs to be said and if your publisher doesn't want to publish you again so be it. Right. And the, and a lot of people have, I'm hearing a lot of private conversations that people have said, I can't say that. It'll affect my publisher deal. It'll affect my speaking contracts. And to a large extent, a lot of people are being kind of duped because they also want to go in there and get that kind of festival buzz. You know, you want to capture that festival buzz and God forbid you say something that could get you booed off the stage. And this goes into, there was a conversation I was having with, comedian Paul Provenza when I was interviewed him for American Atheist magazine. And you find this with comics. Is your goal to entertain or is your goal to speak the truth to power? 
so people get into arguments and really start to wrestle with the social issues of the day. Are you going to be more like a comedian, let's say like, you know, Bill Hicks, George Carlin, Paul Mooney, Paul Provenza, or is your goal to entertain? As a religious satirist, I've always found myself drawn to wanting to do the creating the social change. And I think that's where the church can be transformative. But too often, it goes into the let's entertain, let's sell the books, let's make everybody feel good. Becky Garrison, my guest, as she's the author of Roger Williams' A Little Book of Virtues. And so, uh, yeah, you're right. Speaking, speaking truth and speaking truth uh, that involves great risk. And that's why Roger Williams is also an example of his virtue, because here's a guy who uh, ended up being pretty much pretty well unknown until we discover him again, as, as you have been doing. Well, I say he's still pretty unknown. I mean, he, I mean he, the mm-hmm. thing is, he lacks the evangelical cloud of a Wilberforce. I mean, there's this whole evangelical movement. Let's go promote and push Wilberforce because there, there, he doesn't have the money machine behind him. You know, there's people keep talking about these angry atheists and this rising and so forth. And you look at the actual money. It's not the atheists have no money compared to what the evangelical money machine has. Sure, right. You know, you, you the there is such a domination and a control. And even look at a group like Sojourners. I mean, look at how they played the whole, am I going to come out in favor of gay rights issue? That was just purely, and Wallace even admitted in his Huffington Post interview, the public has spoken, I guess I must follow. No, that's not prophetic leadership. That's chasing the dollar. That's realizing you lost the young evangelical vote, and I must say whatever I will say to lure them back. All right. Becky Garrison speaking some truth on Religion for Life. Uh, I just got about a minute left. Uh, what's What project uh, are you working on now? I, I have a number of different projects in the works. You know, People are more than happy to follow me on Twitter, Becky underscore Garrison, if they want to catch wind of what I'm up to. There's a lot of conversations about the intersection of faith and politics, uh, connecting with humanists. And moving forward as a seeker, there's just seeing what might be evolving when we dare to step into the unknown. Becky Garrison, my guest on Religion for Life. You can find her website, beckygarrison.com, author of the new book, Roger Williams' Little Book of Virtues. Becky Garrison, thank you for being with me on Religion for Life. Well, thank you. Very glad to be there. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. I'm John Shuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton, Tennessee. Our website is fpcelizabethton.org. You can find more information about Religion for Life, including links to podcasts and information about upcoming shows, at religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Also, uh, follow us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Religion for Life is co-produced by WETS-FM in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM in Emory, Virginia. We'll close with the Black Eyed Peas, Where is the Love? Be well.